1: One of my deep concerns and fears is that the public will not change their behaviors until they experience it themselves, either for themselves or for their loved ones.
2: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is is out of patience. On the show today, another stellar returning champion, Dr. Saralyn Mark, former senior medical and policy advisor to the White House, NASA, and the Department of Health and Human Services. She is also a physician women's leader at the American Medical Women's Association and the author of Stellar Medicine, A Journey Through the Universe of Women's Health. Why might she sound familiar? Well, she was on my show in May of this year. The doctor's so nice, we had her back twice. And while that was a handful of epic credentials, the rubber really hit the road today when we both dug deep into the calculus of COVID, meaning how to make sense of anything anymore as a scientist, a parent, a layperson, or perhaps just an educated human being. You know, the United States is often called the Great Experiment, and my oh my, are we ever in a lab today with our state-based social game of whack-a-mole on infections, deaths, mask-wearing compliance, and schools that open one day and, surprise, surprise, literally close two days later. Can't we just shut the whole damn thing down? No, that ship has sailed. So strap in and brace yourself for another exciting episode of What the Hell is Happening? Enjoy the show. Sarah Lynn, thank you so much for coming back on Out of Patience. You were on many, many weeks ago when the world was on fire, but maybe not as on fire as it is today as we record this in late August. I have a litany of questions for you. You probably have a litany of things that you're even more pissed off about because there's just a level of utter ridiculousness happening. Beyond the fact that how do you process this? What is the single most thing that's keeping you up at night? And feel free to add as many Tolstoyan bullets underneath that.
1: Thank you very much, Matthew, for having me back on. And it's so hard to believe it's only been a couple of weeks. It sounds like we've lived lifetimes with all that's gone on. And and certainly as we're dealing with the fires in California, this world, and in Colorado, this world's truly ablaze. I'm starting to have my COVID nightmares again. And that's telling me that there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. I'm worried about so many different things. I'm worried about children coming back to school. I'm worried about the higher rates of infection. I'm really worried about not only the high mortality rates, but the number of people who are getting infected in this issue of potential long haulers or chronic COVID or post-viral syndrome, whatever we want to call it. I am so worried about the social inequities that we're seeing across this country and how that's impacting health care. You know, since we talked, we've been focused on the black lives matter. We've been focused on high rates of mortality and morbidity among black people and Latinos and Latinos and, and our Native American populations and the issue about access to care is so concerning. I'm concerned about vaccines. Are we gonna really be able to develop one that's safe and effective? And and then if we do, how do we get it to our population and the global population? So that whole supply chain issue. So it's not just one thing, it's many. And and another thing that keeps me up at night is we're focusing on physical health, but I'm really concerned about the mental health of, of the folks who are living through a time of uncertainty and fear and losing their jobs and concerned about infection rates among their family members and themselves. And are we even beginning to address that? So you can see, I have a lot of things that are keeping me up at night.
2: Right, but the single most important issue of the day, have you bought a pillow yet?
1: oh my goodness that concerns me too i actually have bought some new pillows but they are not my pillows um yeah and i think that's just indicative of what is happening you know we we have folks who come out touting themselves as experts we're so hungry to want to find that magic solution that magic bullet and unfortunately people don't really read between the lines sometimes and they go and they do things and we see the harm we saw it with people drinking bleach and wanting to take hydroxychloroquine and now oleander and you know it's just so frightening to me that because of the world we're in we can get information out there immediately and then there's no checks no checks and balances so it's it's concerning
2: i think if you want to try and intellectualize this with as much omit perhaps as little alcohol as possible to make it all make sense in a certain (laughs) way I was listening to Andy Slavitt's show in the bubble, and he had Larry Brilliant on, and it was a throwaway line, but one of them said something like, "America is a byproduct of itself as the great experiment, and we are—we have always been a different type of country, for better or for worse, over the last two hundred and some odd years. Do you really think that this is just an end result of us being us, the entitlements?" the corporate capitalism, the cronyism, the gumption of Americans to decide confirmation bias based on digital media?
1: I've been thinking a lot about that. And I've been thinking about that as I've been watching communities around me try to adapt to what we consider a new normal. I mean, you look at our history, you know, we're, we're a young country, only about 250 years old, and, and we have that rebellious spirit. I mean, that's why we broke away from the motherland of England. I mean, it's in our DNA and, and that whole issue of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, one of our basic tenets. And I've often said, sometimes you have to modify your liberties so that you can live and pursue happiness. Um, and we're not asking people to do a heck of a lot, except stay apart for a bit, wear a mask, wash your hands, be conscious of what you're doing to protect yourself and others. And it's, it really, I think it comes down to leadership. I really do. You know, we had, we had such a magical window of time early on when people were afraid, we just were coming into the unknown. And that was when we could have gotten some really valuable messages in. And I think it would have resonated and people would have done what was right to protect themselves and others. When you politicize something, it's really hard to go back. And, and then the other thing is that, we can only take in so much information. I mean, we're, you, you mentioned digital media. We're bombarded every single millisecond. And those neurons are full. And you know, you create these pathways. So if you fill people with information that's incorrect at the start, it's really hard to undo that information, to create new neural pathways with cr- new information, correct information, or maybe even information that's still in the gray area and letting people know we're learning. This is a scientific method. I mean, you, you put in a really good word there, and that's experiment. I've been telling- folks, we've been living through one of the largest experiments in our lifetimes, or perhaps any of our lifetimes, in the history of our country and the global community. And it's really an uncomfortable place to be. We don't like living in shades of gray. We like it black and white. And, you know, when you're living in the shades of gray, you've got to have strong leadership to inspire people to move from A to B. You can't make them afraid, but you can inspire and be honest and transparent.
2: Right. But we are at the point of no return where you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. It's if only, yeah. you know, I, I, this almost goes back to that really bad inside joke that 2020 should never be hindsight again. but you know what do we do now going forward yes we're in transition we're hoping things change in in the fall with the election or whatever changes you know i hate people that are just like oh we should have done what sweden did fine whatever it's too late for that so I, i want your thoughts on again this just goes back to confirmation bias and how on one of my other shows i had a gentleman friend who had COVID. He's a doctor he said that confirmation bias is basically the opiate of digital media and Karen's will be Karen's and Kevin's will be Kevin's. But how do you square the circle on noncompliance versus the wish list of where statistical models can possibly net out because it's basically social whack-a-mole? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's a really good way to look at it. And first of all, when you talk about Sweden, you know, you're talking about herd immunity and some of those statistical models show that millions of people have to die before you would even potentially reach that. Right. And again, keep in mind, you're dealing with the novel coronavirus, so you may not have lasting immunity. So let's say you have a set number of people in your population infected. You don't know how long that immunity is going to last. or are you are going to go through that next series of events? And then is the next infection going to be worse than the first? So, you know, that's what makes it extraordinary difficult. I think, again, leadership is key, but one of my concerns is that people sometimes don't learn until they experience it. We can talk all we want but until you experience it, sometimes it just doesn't settle in. It's like talking to a patient and talking about what you can do to improve your lifestyle and improve your life so you don't develop diabetes or the complications of diabetes, for example. And until something happens, people often don't do it. It's like telling someone, do not smoke, but until they develop emphysema or cancer or a heart attack or something else that's happened, Often it just doesn't register. So one of my deep concerns and fears is that the public will not change their behaviors until they experience it themselves, either for themselves or for their loved ones. You know, it, It's, it's mind boggling to me right now that there are folks in the public who think this is still a hoax or a political scenario to try to shift an election. I, it's just astonishing. And unfortunately, I think more people are going to have to be impacted before we're going to actually see behavioral change.
2: I'm sure you're familiar with the term NIMBY and not in my backyard. I've now heard the expression just NIM, not in my biology, that you really have to suffer to understand what it really means. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of self-indulgence on Twitter too much, but I kind of take a, I'm glad they lived, but I kind of take a very schadenfreude-ish glee from people who really, you know, maybe didn't suffer too much, but got really sick and were fine that were all like, it's a hoax. I just died. It's not a hoax. You shouldn't have to go (laughs) through the car accident to realize you need to drive more safely.
1: Yes. The answer to that is yes. Um, And then even then it's even you hear about people, for example, who are having church services and then the pastor gets infected and unfortunately dies or the parishioners get very ill. It shouldn't have to come to that. And and keep in mind, it's not just death, which, again, is that black and white scenario. It's that shades of gray that once you're infected and you think you recovered, have you really? I'm starting to see patients who are experiencing complications from COVID months down the road that... Is very concerning, very frightening. You know, whether it's chronic otitis media, chronic ear infections, or problems with their breathing, or changes in their skin, or hair falling out. Um, For example, I believe I had COVID in March, and my hair is now falling out. Um, You know, what is the relationship between the disease immediately and also long-term? And is it going to be permanent disability? Is it long-term disability? We just don't know. And also those that we call consider who consider themselves asymptomatic, um, there may be stuff going on inside the body where the lung is being impacted, lungs are being impacted, the heart muscle may be impacted, vessels in the body may be impacted. So you just don't know what that impact will be. And that's why we're so working diligently to try to prevent this transmission so that we don't have these high numbers.
2: Eric Topol just put something up on Twitter the other day that he was working with, um, I think, one of the research, big research groups in Europe, that they've confirmed zero reinfections and that the claims, I'm not, I'm going to botch the the scientific details because guess what? I ain't no scientist, but something that, you know, for people claiming that there are documented reinfections, it's hard to prove. It requires a BSL-3 lab culture with a live virus. There's been no reports to date with 6 million people confirmed in the country, in the world, you know. But to your point is, just because you might never get it again, the fact that you had it once, you know, asymptomatic like me or, or like you or in the hospital, there can be, I think we call it consequences or, or the gift that keeps on giving because you didn't die.
1: Okay. So it gets really complicated here. We look at lab studies, what happens in a cell culture in vitro studies. We look at observational studies, and then we look at that sort of gold standard, the double bond placebo controlled trial. And often they don't correlate with each other. So what you're seeing in a lab may not correlate with what you're going to see downstream, whether it be observational or the double-blinded randomized control trial. So I think we just don't know enough. And then the other thing that makes this really interesting and unique is that there's about seven strains that we've identified of coronavirus for associated with the common cold, one with MERS, one with SARS, and then certainly COVID-19. So let's say you've been exposed to the common cold, another coronavirus, Does it prime your body to either protect you against infection from COVID-19, or does it potentially worsen the symptoms for you if you're exposed to COVID-19? Is that what we're seeing, for example, in children who are developing this multi-system inflammatory syndrome? We just don't know. We just don't know. We're too early on. And then the other thing we have to take into account is viruses mutate. Um, we saw that there was a mutation probably around the February time frame that made it more transmissible, what we saw the, happening with the spread through Europe and into the eastern part of the U.S. So as a virus permeates and percolates through a population, it changes. So I, th- I think we have to stay on guard. And I don't think, you know, we can say definitively, no, you will not be reinfected. We just, I don't believe you can say that.
2: Yeah, I also would love your thoughts. I, as you can tell, I'm very blatant about the podcast I listen to, but- Andy did another episode of In the Bubble about can we really trust the CDC? And I think that's a kind of a loaded question from the perspective (laughs) you're coming from. We really, yes, we should be able to trust the CDC. But do you have any uh, machinations or or, or, or to, to contribute to that conversation?
1: Well, I think, first of all, the people who work at the CDC are very committed public servants Um, We often say you don't go into government to become wealthy. You go in because you want to do good and you want to help the public. So I, I have trust in our governmental agencies, but again, keep in mind that's part of the executive branch. So leadership at the top can often influence how information is delivered, when it's delivered, um, what tools are being used. I think also agencies need to be adequately funded to be able to do their jobs and to be given the leeway to be able to do them correctly and in the scientific method. Um, I wish that the CDC was utilized more Uh, There's some really superb scientists there who've who've been around the block. They've worked on many epidemics and pandemics. Um, I think we're dealing with more of a shortage of of expertise being delivered to the public. Um, And so I think we're living in just very strange times when scientists and clinicians are being demonized um, rather than accepting that there is common good here that they're trying to achieve.
2: Back with our guest after the break.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. (sighs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right.
2: So let's talk about, it's not even an elephant in the room. It's maybe more of, of the Tyrannosaurus, So <laughs> one of the largest dinosaurs that roam the earth right. was school, particularly public school, particularly elementary school. And yes, it's N of 1 based on county and city and mayor and governor and state. It shouldn't be state. I have no idea. Personally, I've got 10-year-old twins. They go to the same public school. They're in different classes. They're changing it. Where are you in the should schools open? Because as of this taping, schools have opened and closed the next day.
1: Okay, so my views about school is this. My view is that school is extraordinarily important, provides certainly education, a social structure, sometimes nutrition, security. But we also have to look at in the global picture of a global pandemic, And unfortunately, the rates of transmission around the globe, around the country, are just very high. My view is that we are living under a different time. It's a new normality, and that schools should not open. I would rather have the energy put towards developing virtual online learning and maybe pods, if possible, so that we can have a robust school system. I think it's extremely disruptive to begin and then to stop and then maybe to begin again. I also want to know what would be our litmus test. How many people have to get infected before we say enough is enough? So my view is that we should not start. Unfortunately, I feel very sad about this because I think we potentially could have if we had remained closed. For a bit longer so that we truly flattened the curve, um, but unfortunately we did not. So we're also beginning to appreciate that there are probably a large number of asymptomatic individuals out there, and we're also appreciating that children can be super spreaders. Um, we thought that their robust immune systems, which could modulate the viral infection differently, would help with that, and we're seeing that may not be the case. Plus, it's not just the students, it's the teachers, it's all the individuals who keep a school running. So we have to protect them and then we have to protect children coming back into homes and we have to protect the family members who are living with children in these homes. So it's complex. Um, unfortunately, I think this is a situation we're in and I believe schools need not to open and that we really devote our energy and time to robust virtual online learning.
2: Yes, there is no simple, easy answer to any of that, which leads into just something my wife and I have been talking about, which is mitigating risk. Until there's a quote-unquote vaccine, until, quote-unquote, we get rid of all the anti-vaxxers, until, until, blah, 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 blah. Where are we as a species medically to add the airbags and the seatbelts and the safety braking and the lane change keep assist versions metaphorically into this? For example, they just approved a swab test. And Mm -hmm. they're now getting closer to having a spit test where you get results in five minutes, ideally Mm -hmm. at some point. Is it worth implementing a spit test every time you walk into a school, a store, a church, and you get turned away and and then you have to go incubate in your living room? To what extent are we going to create less of a fear porn culture, but more of a (laughs) rational, if we do it this way, you're more likely to get struck by lightning?
1: It's a really good question. And how good your test is will dictate what those policies are, how sensitive and specific the test is. And if there is a wide variety of false positives and false negatives, then you can't implement policy based on it. You know, and again, keep in mind that there are windows of time that one may be infectious, but the test may not pick it up. So that makes it complicated as well. I think what we have to do is is stand back for a moment, catch our breath and see where we're at. And and realize this is our new normality. We need to develop systems in place to allow us to social distance. One of my concerns is that as children are at home, the onus of education and caretaking is on the woman. And she's having to leave her career. And, And not only is that detrimental to career development, but also many families are dependent on that extra income, on that additional income. So I think we need to look at the social support structures that we have to develop to allow all this to happen. It's not just testing. In regard to mental health issues, we need to look at that as well so that we adapt to the needs of children and to family members who are, who are caretakers in so many different respects.
2: Yeah, the reason that I brought up public school, particularly elementary school, is because you know once you're 13, 14, 15, middle school, high school, you have different social dogma around your rearing and your upbringing, ideally if you're in that space. And when you're pre-KK, when you physically need way more nurturing, way more interaction, way more direct touch, feel, reading, writing, speech, language, you know, how are they compensating for that? Or are we going to just have a generation of children that missed a two year gap in where they're supposed to be you know, rearing and learning, and then we're going to see this in 10 years. We're all on Woody Allen therapy, more. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, you bring up again some really important points. First of all, there are some families where folks who are, are on the front line or they're essential workers and they, they can't stay home. They have to be out there. So how do you support students and children that way? Or are there in environments where they don't have the tools and technology that allow them to do online learning? So we really need to direct our energies very, very quickly we need to address this. The other thing is we're a resilient species. My dad was a Holocaust survivor. He was a child in four concentration camps, lost horrifically his entire family and and grew up to be very well-adjusted, self-learner. So I, I don't want us to have this fatalist view that if this is a disruptive school year for a year or even two that we've lost an entire generation. Um, I think human beings are, can adapt and I think we can deploy resources to to help minimize the damage that that is there. We can't deny that, but we can try to do the best we can. I think we have to accept now we're living under a new time. It's a new normality. I was asked early on in, in March and April, well, what is our new normal life? And I had no idea, but now I'm starting to get an idea about what it is. And you know you can either fight it and you can deny it or you can accept it and try to find ways to live with it. And that's where I really, I've been trying to help my family and friends and my community to move into that pathway so that we can do the best we can, especially I often tell people, winter is coming, you know, the Game of Thrones, slogan: winter is coming. And it's, you know, we're gonna be dealing with flu, we're gonna be dealing with having to be inside, you know, you're not gonna be doing outdoor dining very easily, social distancing will be more challenging. We we need to have a really rigorous discussion about how we're going to adapt to this. And how do we move our lives forward?
2: You have been fairly public about the hypothetical that we should just shut the whole country down again, Mm -hmm. which, of course, yes, that's like, you know, that's putting the genie back in the bottle. I have never been able to rationalize how a global pandemic could be a state-based decision tree. And yes, blue states versus red states versus governors versus this, it really has become a 50-state jumble in that sense. But is closing the whole country down relevant to the states that have done really well, like New York, like New England, where there is some indoor dining? There is something happening because of following the data and the science versus Florida, Texas, Arizona, where it's just rampant.
1: Yeah. So – I believe in global policies. You know, we're a global economy. Our borders are porous. We can get from point A to B within a matter of hours flying over an ocean. You know, it's not like the 1800s where you were in a boat and you could sail to a port and stay quarantined for a couple weeks. I I believe in a global mass mandate. Keep it simple. Early on, I I said, you know, the messages have to be cogent, they have to be consistent with facts, and they have to be coordinated among all messengers. And maybe then the public can help understand it and, and accept it and adapt to it. Um, I've also said that I thought what was going to happen is that the issues would be regional, rolling, and revolving. And what do I mean by that? We're not living in a static time. Just as you said, one state can do better than another. And then in regard to revolving, there may be times where we can come out and times where we have to come back in as the numbers rise. And we have to be fluid and flexible with that. I think the challenge is, and I'm I'm watching these quarantine patterns, for example, with New York, it just came out with a new list. If you're traveling to the state, then you need to quarantine. Well, first of all, how are you enforcing that? I think it's gonna be challenging. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, you're willing, you have to be dependent on the goodwill of the individual. The other thing is, I know it's incredibly disruptive to just shut everything down. I mean, it's economically disruptive, psychosocially, it's disruptive. Unfortunately, that may be what will happen in the winter as the numbers climb. You know, with that said, New York, I know that the rates of transmission are low. Try to get done as much as you can, but in the back of your mind, know that you may possibly have to come back in. And that's the revolving component of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I keep coming back to how everyone's saying, well, it's, it's outdoors, it's the summer. You know, here in New York, you know, if everyone's fairly compliant, but yes, I mean, there are still hordes of people not wearing masks there are still right. people doing things that they shouldn't be doing you know you go to the beach and yeah you can you can't really it's good to see life happening again but right yes is it because it's outdoors and it's warm and it's nice or is it just not data ish enough to believe that it's maybe not as bad as we think it was because it's not winter
1: well, we certainly know being indoors, uh, the rates of transmissions higher. And, you know, we're watching droplet and air size exposures and how that plays into the transmission of this virus. Um, outdoors, certainly you're at an advantage. You know, you have wind and you have sunlight and you're able to keep distance. But I have to say, when I see people outside and they're not wearing a mask, it really angers me now. And part of it is because they don't care enough about me and my family, and I'm wearing a mask to protect them as well as myself. So I think, you know, we, we've lulled ourselves in a way into a false sense of confidence that as long as you're outdoors, there's no issue. I'm not 100% certain of that. I really am not. You know, are you the unfortunate one sitting near somebody and during a period of time and just over a sweat period of time, you you get exposed? With that said, you know, trying to maximize the distance that you can between individuals and, and just wearing a mask, it's simple. You know, you've gone through therapy, chemotherapy, and probably during that time, you were wearing a mask and it wasn't to protect the public from you, but it was to protect you from the public. And I think that message also has to get out. We've done such a good job, you know, wear a mask for your loved one, wear a mask for your friend. And some people have told me, well, I don't really like my loved ones and I really don't have any friends. (laughs) So that whole altruistic aspect of it doesn't count, but wear a mask for yourself. And, you know, this is just a simple tool that we have that can really, I think, make a difference.
2: Yeah. I mean, someone had conflated the the mask mandate to like a one ounce carry forgiveness, and you can't really... Look at every single person and start issuing summonses. And, and what if your mask is not over your nose, but over your mouth? Right. you get like half right. a summons? You know, right. what I, I think people that know me know I'm going to say what I say, but I think what confounds me the most are people who do comply and are happy to wear the masks and maybe get a fashionable one that looks good with their outfit. Right. But when they go to talk to you, they pull the mask down. <laughs> Why are you pulling your mask down to talk to me?
1: I know it's it's just getting used to something new for me now if I go out the door we have a mask mandate in in Washington DC so it's even outside and if I go out the door and I don't have it I feel like something's missing we have to just make it second nature we need to do a better job of educating people will wear it around you know their their mouths but their noses are uncovered and I'll often say you know pull your mask up Um, it's just it's education and again Until I think more and more people are impacted and they're either infected or affected by it, we we have a a challenge ahead of us to get these messages out and have it resonate. All
2: right. So final question, kind of a softball question. Is it respiratory or respiratory?
1: (laughs) I think it depends on what part of the world you're in, but we all understand it. So it's, it's, we all understand it.
2: But we do know it's Kamala.
1: Yes. Yes. That is. we can agree that on. Is, Kamala. That is, <laughs> that is correct. We can agree on that. And I think the other part, you know, we focused on COVID nineteen being a respiratory illness. I think I see it more as a vascular illness that mm-hmm. impacts every single system of the body. And that's what makes it so challenging. Um, and as we begin to uncover more and more, we're gonna see we're gonna see just how lethal and how dangerous this virus is.
2: Well, the doctor's so nice. We had her on twice. Let's get you on thrice.
1: Love to come back.
2: Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark is a former senior medical and policy advisor to the White House, NASA, and the Department of Health and Human Services. She is a physician's women leader for the American Medical Women's Association and the author of Stellar Medicine, a journey through the universe of women's health. Thanks again for coming on the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you. I hope when I'm back, we'll have better news.
2: And that my kids will be in school to be continued.
0: Dum, dum, dum! (laughs) That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary.